Um, be seated, please. I'm a little out of practice. Um, first, uh, I wanted to dedicate this lecture to Amy Cass. Uh, am I speaking loud enough? Okay. I wanted to uh, dedicate this lecture to Amy Cass. She was, for a while, a tutor at the college. She was a friend to me, a friend to the college, and she passed away a little over a year ago, uh, but I think, I think there's a little of her present in this lecture, the good parts. So. Does a St. John's education lead one to become a more virtuous human being? Does it improve one's character? Early in my tenure as a tutor, I recall this being discussed by the faculty. I don't recall what prompted the discussion or its details, but I vividly recall two things first. One tutor drew our attention to the statement of the program. At the time, the principal document used to inform prospective students about the college. This tutor drew attention to the statement as evidence that we as a community already professed that a liberal education has moral consequences, that it prepares students to be good citizens. It begins, St. John's is a community dedicated to liberal education. Liberally educated human beings, the college believes, acquire a lifelong commitment to the pursuit of fundamental knowledge and to the search for unifying ideas. They are intelligently and critically appreciative of their common heritage and conscious of their social and moral obligations. They are well equipped to master the specific skills of any calling, and they possess the means and the will to become free and responsible citizens. If our liberal education supplies both the means and the will to free and responsible citizenship, wouldn't this mean that liberal education renders free and responsible citizenship inevitable? Does the attainment of this free and responsible citizenship presuppose not only an awareness of the social and moral obligations, but action on their basis? The second thing I recall is that when this came up in the faculty meeting, several tutors responded with skepticism. They were reluctant to assent to the claim that a liberal education prepares one to be a good citizen or a moral human being. The skepticism is not surprising. One can see that the statement of the program itself hedges on its claim. The statement stops short of claiming that the attainment of a free and responsible citizenship is a consequence of these moral obligations. Oops. And to say that liberally educated persons are conscious of their moral obligations is not the same as saying that they will act on them. This reluctance to claim a moral outcome for liberal education arises partly from an uncertainty about the connection between our primary activity, the intellectual activity of reading and asking questions about what we've read and discussing it, and the practical conduct of our lives. Our founding document, the Mino, begins, of course, with Socrates asserting that he does not know how virtue is acquired, whether by teaching or learning, by practice or by nature, because he does not know what virtue is. If, contrary to this, we were to give the statement of the St. John's program an unguarded, robust interpretation, as a tutor, I would appear to be in the position of saying, Socrates doesn't know what virtue is, but I do. I know how it's acquired, uh, 
I know how it is acquired. I know the means and the will to practice virtue. And the means and the will to practice virtue and good citizenship are acquired through liberal education as I practice it. I would be laying claim to an expertise that Socrates claimed to lack. I'd be implying that Socrates was either naive or ironically deceitful. And if in seminar I were to ask what is virtue, I would be asking questions only for the sake of drawing out answers and not because I had a real question to puzzle over. More troubling, if we tutors knew what virtue is and how it's acquired, we might be expected to possess virtue and to exhibit it in our lives, both professional and private. Or, at the very least, we might be expected to have an argument ready at hand for why we preferred the alternative. Faced with this difficulty, one option would be to disavow any practical consequences for liberal education and to put the emphasis on liberal education as an intellectual pursuit. We could ask, what is virtue and how is it acquired? We could formulate plausible answers and test them in the crucible of our conversations with no expectation that anyone should become more virtuous on account of this activity. These questions would have no more import for how we live than asking whether light is a wave or a particle. We could imitate Socrates from the Apology, who denies that he has the art of making those around him better human beings and better citizens, who calls anyone who has this art blessed. But this would be at least a little disingenuous, insofar as Socrates denies he provides a service to the youths who follow him, whereas tutors do, I believe, think of themselves as providing a service. So we navigate awkwardly, although in good faith, between the extremes of making too bold a claim for the practical import of our liberal education and making none at all. We're wary of professing a fullness of knowledge that would recommend a particular way of life, but neither do we want to confess to an ignorance that's utterly impotent. I frame this problem in terms of where it puts the tutors as those who offer or serve a liberal education but the question stands for all members of our community, students and staff who devote themselves to this education. What, if any, are the practical and especially the moral consequences of our activity? To address this question, I would like to turn to Aristotle's ethics. Aristotle, unlike Socrates, says what virtue is, and he says how it's acquired. The ethics looks like it might be an easier place to get one's footing. To me, the ethics seemed promising for a second reason. A long time ago, it was brought to my attention that if you were to consider what a good man is, the English word good might translate at least three words in Greek, agathos, spudaios, and epiekes. A fine translation will distinguish these words, but the words sometimes seem synonymous. Teasing them apart is not easy. Agathos is is the word frequently and perhaps most naturally translated as good. I won't dwell on it because it poses no difficulties on the surface, and if I try to penetrate that surface and understand the good, I won't ever reach the other two. Spudaios and case are more foreign to us and harder to render well. It's possible that Spudaios and case are two ways of talking about the same human type. The two words often share the same opposite, phallos, meaning petty or base. But I think they point to different ways of being good, different forms of human goodness. And for reasons I'll get into soon, 
Spadaios could be translated virtuous, whereas Epier case might be translated as decent. My enterprise tonight will be to travel about the ethics, probing passages where the virtuous and the decent appear with a view to teasing them apart. To put it bluntly, the hunch I want to explore is, is it possible that a liberal education could never be expected to render you spadaios, could never be expected to render you virtuous, but it might be expected to render you decent, EPA case. So I'll draw portraits of these two human types and then say something about how one becomes either one and whether, we, whether what we do here is conducive to either end. To be honest, I admit now that this will mean committing the sin of evading or at least skirting the central question that I alluded to about the relation of knowledge, ignorance, and virtue. But perhaps this diversion will position us to better address that question another time. The ethics begins by asking, what is the good, Agathos? The answer, easily said, but not well understood, is that the good for man, at least, is happiness. In the effort to understand what happiness is, Aristotle's starting point is to assume that we know the difference between someone who does something passably well and someone who does it very well. We recognize the difference between a guitarist and a good guitarist. The good guitarist is distinguished by his virtue as a guitarist. The word good in this passage translates spudaios. Virtue is what sets apart the good guitarist, the one serious about his activity. When this connection between virtue and spadaios is first introduced, neither one appears to have a moral connotation. The initially amoral character of the inference is apparent when Aristotle says it is the virtue of the eye that makes the eye function well and be a good eye, that is, a spudaios eye. The good for man is difficult to discern with clarity. The good man, I suppose, is less mysterious. We know him when we see him. It's in making this transition from the good for man to the good man that Aristotle introduces the possession of virtue as the distinguishing characteristic. The connection between virtue and spudaios is sufficiently strong that one might simply translate spudaios as virtuous. In English, the noun virtue has an adjective derived from it, virtuous, obviously. If a man has virtue, then you would say he's virtuous. In Greek, there is no corresponding adjective derived from the word for virtue, arete. If a man has arete, then you would say he is spudaios. Yet spudaios indicates not only the acquisition of the virtue belonging to a given activity, it also highlights the attitude and the effort that is the precondition for acquiring the virtue. The most immediate translation of spudaios may be earnest or serious. It's an adjective derived from a noun spude, which means haste, zeal, or effort. Spudaya things are weighty and worth serious attention. How does one become a good guitarist? Virtue or skill does not belong to us by nature. Practice and application, effort and zeal are conditions for obtaining it. One becomes a spudaios guitarist by taking the guitar seriously and playing it often. I don't play the guitar, by the way. Uh, one becomes, um, one can take any number of things seriously. In one passage, Aristotle mentions honor, wealth, or offspring. What you are serious about not only shapes what you do, but insensibly, over time, it shapes who you are. 
If you take wealth very seriously, too seriously, then you'll become ungenerous, illiberal, unfree. The man having all the ethical virtues, the great-souled man, is serious about only a few things. He does not take minor setbacks seriously. He does not take to heart things that cannot be avoided. But his gait and his voice show that concerning a few things, at least, he's the most serious human being of all. The man having all ethical virtues is hospudaios, the serious one. Joe Sachs translates this as a man of serious stature or serious worth. I'll prefer the English word virtuous. Thus, whenever in this lecture I refer to the virtuous man, I mean very precisely the one Aristotle understands as spudaios. How does one become virtuous? Ethical virtues like skills are acquired by practice. You have to work at them. You become just by performing just actions and transactions with others. You acquire courage by acting as a courageous man would in dangerous situations. To a young adult, the vicious action may be pleasurable, the virtuous action painful. Punishment is generally required to deter us from one and steer us towards the other. How you are raised and habituated from childhood makes all the difference, as Aristotle says. Correct penalties and rewards are meted out first by your parents and later by the laws. It's not enough to be well cared for in your youth. You have to pursue correct activities in adulthood in order to establish the disposition as part of your character. All of this you already know. The upshot for the present is that pursuing a liberal education seems to contribute very little to becoming virtuous in this sense. Aristotle points out periodically through the eth- points this out periodically through the ethics. He says that knowing what the virtues are does not help the virtuous man to act virtuously, since virtuous action arises not from what he knows, but from his character. And Aristotle derides people who, thinking that they're philosophizing, expect to become virtuous, spudaios, by making speeches rather than by doing what is right. Yet Aristotle also says that his inquiry is not merely for the sake of knowing what virtue is and thinking about it, but for the sake of becoming good, for acquiring virtue and exercising it. We seem to be left with a paradox. The inquiry into happiness and virtue aims at making one good, but the completion of this inquiry, knowing what happiness is and what virtue is, seems insufficient to make one good. To think about this disjunction between knowing the good and becoming good, we have to go back almost to the beginning of the book. In the early chapters, Aristotle considers the opinion found in Plato's Republic that if one knew the good in itself, on the basis of knowing the universal good, one would also know all the particular goods. The things that are good, the things that are good for man, and knowing them, one would also choose them. Against this, Aristotle argues that good, this is Agathos, is meant in several ways, so there is no common good that is one and universal. Even if there were some one thing good in itself, it would not be something that could be possessed and enacted by a human being. Aristotle relents a little in this critique and admits that there may be some underlying reason we use the word good in the related ways that we do. 
but he still denies that this underlying connection between the ways of saying good could form the basis of how knowledgeable men seek the good in their lives. In this way, Aristotle descends somewhat quickly from the good in itself to the good for man or to happiness. But even asserting that the good is happiness does not advance his inquiry very far because the word happiness requires explication. And this brings us to where we began. Aristotle explicates happiness by ascertaining the work characteristic of a human being. And in this context, he observes the difference between the guitarist simply and the good guitarist, the spadios guitarist, is that the good guitarist has the virtue of playing the guitar. The movement of the argument is from the good in itself, which either does not exist or cannot be known, to the human good, which is our end, but whose form is often debated, to the good human being, the spadios human being, whose goodness is recognizable or can be explicated. The good in itself is hidden or obscure, whereas the virtuous man is a form of goodness recognizable to us. Thus, the virtuous man takes the place of the good in itself as a paradigm for recognizing the human good. Whereas we mostly find virtuous actions painful, the virtuous man finds them pleasurable. What the virtuous man finds pleasant is pleasant by nature. Whatever seems good to him is good in fact. There is no science of the good to distinguish the true good from the apparent good, but there exists a human being for whom what appears and what is are the same. When judging what is pleasurable and what is noble, the virtuous man serves as our measure. Aristotle defines virtue, but you cannot become virtuous simply by acting from your understanding of that definition. You must look towards a virtuous human being and act the way he acts. The fact that the spadios man is the measure for us is a sign of the limit to which knowing what virtue is can be the means for becoming virtuous. Given this disjunction between knowledge and practice, if the primary aim of liberal education is fundamental knowledge and seeking out unifying ideas, there seems to be no prospect of it leading us to acquire virtue, virtuous character as well. To acquire virtue requires serious application, a repeated practice of noble actions. It is true, in order to flourish in a liberal education, uh, this requires some kind of analogous discipline. And we have several conventions here by which we impose an unusual discipline on ourselves. We attend seminars on weekday evenings, and we attend lectures on Friday evenings, times usually reserved for recreation. We thereby draw no strict divide between recreation and the serious, if leisured, pursuit of knowledge. We impose upon ourselves the rigors of Greek paradigms and Newtonian theorems, and probably other things worse, because we jointly impose upon ourselves, and because we jointly uh, impose upon ourselves these rigors, they become a kind of law for us. This unusual discipline may aid us, students and tutors, in becoming spudaios readers of Greek and spudaios geometricians. But the discipline alone does not make us spudaios simply. Subjecting oneself to discipline in these matters as such does not necessarily lead to virtue. The disciplined musician or athlete may become a first-rate guitarist or a first-rate swimmer and still have a base character.
Let us turn from the virtuous man to the decent one. The broadest translation of epiekes might be fitting or suitable, although reasonable and fair are common enough. Epiekes is derived from a verb, eoika, to seem likely or to befit. Epiekes refers to what is fitting or fair, especially insofar as what is fitting or fair is apparent. Within the context of the ethics, epiekes is most frequently translated as equitable, a translation justified by the discussion of the quality in Book 5. There, Aristotle describes the equitable man as one who may appear unjust when he chooses something not in accord with the law, but who is just because he chooses as a lawgiver would have chosen under the same circumstances. I'll say more about this in a moment. Equitable is no doubt the appropriate English word to describe this quality in its legal context. This adjective comes from the noun equity, a term in jurisprudence that refers to the practice of considering the reason and spirit of a statute under unusual circumstances. The word epiekes, however, appears intermittently, often really, throughout the ethics, with no reference to its jurisprudential sense. Sachs translates epiekes as decent on the grounds that it's not primarily a legal term, but just a common way to name human goodness. In fact, Aristotle himself points out that epiakes is praised so highly that in Greek, the word is sometimes used synonymously with agathos, good. As a translation for epiakes, decent also has the advantage of being derived from the Latin, decore, a word that means to be fitting or becoming. Consider the English word decorous, which comes from the same root. As a translation of epie case, then, decent has the advantage of being a word whose Latin root is very similar to the root of the Greek word it's translating. The obvious disadvantage of decent is that, as an English word, it's really rather faint praise. The epie case man is genuinely good, not merely satisfactory. So why should we turn from the virtuous man to the decent? Why should we pry them apart in the first place? One of the sources of this for me was Aristotle's poetics, which I'll touch on only in passing. Epic and tragedy can have as their subject virtuous, spudios men, and things of serious stature. Homer, Aristotle says, is the poet par excellence of the virtuous man. In tragedy, one sees the protagonist, a man of serious stature, make some kind of error and pass from good fortune to bad. In viewing this experience, we experience in viewing this, we experience pity and fear. In contrast with this, Aristotle somewhat surprisingly says it would be loathsome to show the decent man changing from good fortune to bad. If it is appropriate for the decent man to appear in tragedy at all, he should not be the central figure. This distinction in the poetics provoked me to wonder what is the difference between the being virtuous and being decent? Why is the fall into misfortune loathsome for the decent man, but pitiable for the virtuous one? Is the virtuous man susceptible to error in a way that the decent man is not? Given this distinction between the virtuous man and the decent with respect to tragedy and returning to the ethics, perhaps it's not a coincidence that the decent man makes two brief appearances in the chapters treating the conversational virtues of truthfulness, wit, intact. Aristotle says, whoever is truthful when nothing is at stake seems to be decent 
since he seems to be a lover of the truth. Truthful speech is no guarantee of decency, but it appears to be an important sign of it. The subject comes up again in the immediately following discussion of wit and tact. Wit is distinguished from the vices of buffoonery and boorishness, that is, going to excess and trying to make people laugh and never saying anything funny. Superadded, yeah, that's the rest of this lecture. <laughs> um, Superadded to the virtue of wit is tact. The tactful person will say to others or will, will allow others to say to him only the things that are fitting for a decent and liberal person. If we are to infer that the decent man is witty, no less than tactful. And if wit is understood as somehow opposed to seriousness, then the decent man emerges as somewhat distinct from the virtuous man, perhaps less serious. He engages in playful humor within limits, and he avoids condescension and boasting equally. Moreover, the decent and witty man is liberal. He has the virtue characteristic of a free man. It is in the following book uh, in the Ethics on Justice where decency first takes center stage. To understand its appearance, it's necessary to remind ourselves of a few things about Aristotle's treatment of justice. He observes that we typically use the word unjust ambiguously. We say it first about someone who breaks the law and second about someone who's unfair and takes more than his share. Just, like unjust, has two corresponding senses. In the first sense, to be just is to be lawful. This is justice as it comprehends, embraces the ethical virtues and stakes a claim to being the comprehensive virtue. When the, when the law is well-framed, it prescribes a variety of actions in accord with all the virtues. To be just, therefore, means to practice all the virtues. In the second sense of justice, to be just means to be fair and not to take more than one's due. And this is justice as a particular virtue. It's just as a particular virtue that concerns Aristotle most of all, but it's justice in the comprehensive sense that concerns me here. Since justice as the lawful is virtue as a whole, and since the virtuous, the spadios man, is the one who has all the virtues, it's fitting that justice as what is lawful concerns whatever the virtuous or spadios man cares about. This is not to say that the virtuous man is simply lawful. He chooses lawful actions not because the law commands them, but because they are noble. But it seems the life of the virtuous man, seeking the noble and its concomitant honors, moves within the ambit of the law. This connection between the virtuous man and the law is echoed in the politics. There, Aristotle asks whether the virtue of a good man is the same as the virtue of a good citizen, or more precisely, he asks whether the virtue of an agathos honor, an agathos man, is the same as the virtue of a spudaios citizen. Goodness simply is associated with being a man simply. Goodness pertaining to a citizen depends in some measure on the law. The equation between the just and the lawful supposes that the laws are well framed. Later, Aristotle draws a distinction between what is just according to law and what is just according to nature. He thereby pries open a space between the lawful and the just, and he prepares us for the intro introduction of decency, or epiakeia. 
the discussion of decency begins with a problem. It may happen that a good or decent man, whom we are inclined to say is just, sometimes does what is against the law. The problem turns out to be not especially vexing or interesting. Aristotle quickly explains that the law is always a general statement, but in particular circumstances, sorry, in particular circumstances, application of the general statement is not just. The decent man does what is outside the law as a correction to the law. The decent man, Aristotle says, is more just than he would be if he simply followed the law. He says that justice as the lawful and justice as decency are both virtuous, that is, they're both spudaios, but decency is better. Decency is virtuous, but it's something more than virtue as well. This treatment of decency comes near the end of Aristotle's discussion of the moral virtues. It prepares us for the intellectual virtues, and especially for the intellectual virtue of prudence. This seems fitting, since we first noted it as associated with uh, the conversational virtues, truthfulness, wit, and tact. Decency is that by which one chooses not to follow the general or categorical statement of the law, but to make an exception. Prudence is that by which one selects the particular action that leads to the correctly desired end. Both qualities involve the correct apprehension of particulars, as distinguished from following general statements. In Book 6, Aristotle says that one judges what is decent by the faculty of consideration. By having consideration for others, the decent man is forgiving. Consideration, this faculty by which we're decent, is closely allied, Aristotle says, with intellect and astuteness. All three capacities appear to be natural. All three capacities converge with prudence as a perception of a particular choice-worthy action. Still, consideration, this natural faculty that lies at the basis of decency, is not equivalent to prudence. The prudent man is one who deliberates well about what is advantageous for himself and for life in general. But knowing the good for oneself is not separable from knowing the good for one's city and how to attain it. From this it is clear that prudent deliberation requires very extensive experience. Prudence is acquired. Consideration appears to be natural. So decency, grounded in consideration, helps us to trace the transition from the ethical virtues to the intellectual virtues. As a correction to the lawful, decency is the first suggestion that the moral virtues are incomplete. It thereby points to the perfection of the moral virtues by the intellectual virtue of prudence. But decency in itself seems not to include or to presume the possession of prudence. From what I have said, it would appear that the decent man is a higher type than the virtuous man, but other passages bring this into doubt, and frankly, I'm pretty perplexed about this. First, although we've said that decency points towards the intellectual virtue of prudence, Aristotle later says that possessing virtue is a condition for being prudent, since it is having virtue that leads one to aim at the right end. Without virtue, one would not be prudent, but merely clever. Not all virtuous or spudaioi men are prudent, but every prudent man is spudaios. 
A second reason for doubting the superiority of decency is found in the politics. When discussing aristocratic regimes, Aristotle suggests that decent men are just more common than wholly virtuous ones. Finally, as I mentioned before, whenever Aristotle notes that the good man is the measure of our desires, of our pleasures, and our actions, he refers explicitly to the spadios man and never to the decent. If both types of men are good in some sense, the spadios seems to be the measure of the class, while decency admits of degrees. Rather than contriving a relative ranking of the two, I'd say that calling one decent points to something different than calling him virtuous. To call a man virtuous points to his character, to his desires and pleasures, to his heart and his gut, to what he takes most seriously. To call him decent points to his habits of mind, his activities, what he thinks and says in common with others. It's in the books on friendship where the decent man stands most in the foreground, even if the virtuous man is much in evidence here as well. Since the word epiakes is sometimes used synonymously with agathos, as we noted, it should not be surprising that the good friendship is sometimes referred to as a decent friendship. Men and women enjoying good friendships are said to be decent. Decency seems suitable to friendship if we think of friendship like decency as something similar to, but also superior to, justice. Justice demands precision. It demands equality first, and if equality is not possible, it demands proportional compensation. In seeking justice, you ensure that you do not get less than you deserve, and your counterpart does the same. Decency loosens this precision. The decent man waives the strict calculation of the penalty, in order to attain the end intended by the lawgiver. Similarly, in a good friendship, each man wishes for the good of his friend more than for the good for himself. Friendship is a more generous and a more liberal arrangement than justice. Not only does decency share a kinship with friendship, towards the end of the discussion of friendship, decency looks like the ground for the possibility of friendship at all. Aristotle observes that the things we attribute to friendship are also things we observe in the way the decent man behaves towards himself. Aristotle makes four arguments on this point. I'll mention only two. First, a friend wishes for and seeks to bring about the good of his friend for the sake of that friend. But the decent man also does this for himself, and he does it especially for the part of himself that is most for the sake of itself. This is the thinking part of himself. The thinking part has a status because no one would wish for all the goods in the world on the condition that he becomes someone different. And so the thinking part seems to be most of all what each person is. Now for the second argument. Friends wish to spend time together, but the decent man wishes to spend time with himself. For his mind is well furnished with things to contemplate, such as memories and hopes. The capacity of a decent man to be friends with others rests on his capacity to be a friend to himself. It is because he is a friend to himself and stable in this friendship with himself that he also serves well as a friend to another. In explaining how decency is the ground of friendship, Aristotle permits us to peer into the soul of the decent man. A good friendship turns out to be the soul of the decent man writ large. 
To be a friend to oneself means to be a friend to the thinking part of oneself, since this is the authoritative part, the part that seems to be the whole. In friendship, as a soul writ large, we find a soul that obeys the intellect, but not the way that subjects in a city obey a tyrant, or I think even a king, although that's debatable. By way of a contrast, a, a base man, a man lacking decency and being subject to strong passions, is at variance with himself. At odds with himself, it's difficult for him to be a reliable friend to anyone else. What passes for friendship depends on the circumstances. When circumstances change, the friendship vanishes. Aristotle even goes so far as to say that base men have friendly feelings towards themselves insofar as they presume themselves to be decent and are thus satisfied with themselves. A false presumption of decency looks like the condition for sustaining friendship even in those who are not decent at all. Let me take a step back here for a moment to say something too cursory about the decent man and the virtuous man, specifically in the chapters that I'm now talking about. I've emphasized uh, the appearance of the decent man in the chapters on friendship, while the virtuous man also appears woven through these same passages. But in these chapters, as I alluded to before, decent men come in degrees. Some are more decent, some less. The virtuous man, by contrast, is an extreme. He is the standard and measure. Epiakes is a comparative, spudaios a superlative. As a result, Aristotle brings up the virtuous man in limit cases. To take one example, if the virtuous man is self-sufficient and leads a blessed life, does he need friends at all? Can one be so virtuous, so spudaios, that he has no need of other human beings? To take a second example, we find generally that the virtuous and the decent both seek what is noble. But of the decent, Aristotle says that he does what is best and obeys his intellect. Of the virtuous, he says, he will give up wealth, offices, all the goods that men strive for, even his life, for the sake of what is noble. Recall that the virtuous man, unlike the decent, is a fitting subject for tragedy. So how does one become decent? And what, if anything, would this have to do with a liberal education? At the close of the ethics, Aristotle points out a difference between the decent man and most men. The decent may be persuaded by speeches to do what is noble. Most men are not susceptible to persuasive speech, but must be threatened with punishments. Aristotle jokes, if speeches were sufficient for making men decent, then justly would those speakers take many large fees. From this passage, it would seem that a liberal education could hardly make one decent. Within the context of these passages, it seems that one is made decent the same way one is made virtuous by the law, by thoughtful speech armed with penalties and rewards. Rather than draw this conclusion, I would like to try out an alternative that friendship is another, in fact, superior means to becoming decent. I want to propose the possibility that the connection between decency and friendship that I touched on before operates in both directions. If the decency of an individual is the ground of his being friends with others, conversely, friendship with others may be a means of becoming decent. The upshot of this would be that it's easier for a friend, it's easier to be a friend to another 
and easier to find another to be a friend to you than it is for you to be a friend to yourself. As Aristotle says, the company of good men may be a kind of training in virtue. Let's frame the question a little bit differently. In the multiplicity within oneself, how do the parts come to be in harmony with and hearken to the thinking part? There does not seem to be any knowledge of the good in itself or even any knowledge of the human good that invests the thinking part with sufficient authority over the rest of the self. There does not appear to be any simple way to give the thinking part the strength to overcome desires and passions. We noted before that those who think they philosophize and talk about virtue don't become virtuous by doing so. What if the so-called strength or weakness of the thinking part lies not in the thinking part at all, but in the rest of the soul, in whether and how the other parts hearken to the thinking part? On this supposition, the so-called thinking part would be a function of the soul as a whole. On this supposition, friendship would be a way to prepare desires and passions to hearken to the thinking part. I'll say only a few words on behalf of this conjecture. The first condition for friendship is thinking well of someone else, thinking him to be decent. Friendship begins with how one human being frames another human being within his mind. But simply thinking well of someone else is not friendship. To this, there has to be added affection and reciprocity. The person you think well of must know you think well of him, and he must think well of you. We seek this respect from others because we seek confirmation about ourselves. It's harder to recognize decency in oneself than it is to see it in another. Recognizing it in another and acknowledging that another has seen it in us seem to be a training for recognizing it in oneself and by oneself. This mutual recognition must include affection because of the connection between internal friendships and external friendships. When you love what you think well of in another, the passionate part of your soul becomes a little more obedient to its own thinking part. If this conjecture is correct, if friendship is a means to becoming decent, the question still remains, what does this have to do with a liberal education? On this point, and beginning from the ethics, I can say only a little. You might think well of a virtuous stranger by observing his deeds, his deeds from afar. He may, you may make him the measure of your own actions, but this is not friendship. The first stages of friendship, a pleasurable friendship, if not a good one, begin with the conversational virtues of wit and tact. The core of friendship lies in sharing with a friend the awareness of one's existence, and this shared awareness is attained most of all by sharing speeches and thoughts. As friendship becomes closer, as each knows the other as a second self, more and more the characteristic activity of the friendship becomes conversation. I would venture that these friendships are liberal and that they make you more liberal, at least in Aristotle's sense of the word. Whether that's what we mean by liberal education is another question. We have already seen that friendship in contradistinction with justice, is concerned more with giving freely than receiving what is due. You no longer act under the compulsion of the law. You act for the sake of what is noble, as it is first made manifest to you in the figure of your friend. Decency, 
understood as doing what the lawgiver intended rather than what the law prescribes, likewise points to this freedom. It may be telling that it's precisely in the chapter on the seemingly trivial conversational virtues of wit and tact that Aristotle says the tactful man, a liberal man, is a law unto himself. At the close of the chapters on friendship, Aristotle emphasizes that friends should live together in order to share whatever activities they take pleasure in, whether it's partying, playing games, athletics, or philosophizing. It's a little disappointing that Aristotle does not distinguish these activities in terms of their worth when we reach this passage. <laughs> Didn't Athletics is first, of course. <laughs> so, um, Although it becomes clear in the end that the last activity, that's philosophizing, is more serious than the others. If my starting point is Aristotle's ethics and the difference between Spidaios and Epiakes, this might be as far as I can go in arguing that friendship especially a friendship grounded in truthful, witty, philosophical conversation, can make one a decent human being. But as a postscript, let me say that I do not mean to draw the conclusion that the path to decency lies through the contemplative life as Aristotle describes it. The contemplative life is solitary and divine, suitable for a simple being, whereas we are composite. I suggest, rather, that a friendship anchored in conversation, though perhaps not entirely occupied with conversation, might be the surest means for, one to attain, for us to attain one form of the human good. If our liberal education improves our characters at all, I would maintain it's not by means of the intellect's solitary activity of contemplation, but by means of the friendly conversations with one another that imperceptibly benefit our friend, the intellect, within us. Thank you. <laughs>